This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. This show kicks off my 16th year on the Federal News Network, and I'm happy to share my anniversary episode with my friend and co-author, Mike Lissagor. Mike, hey, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Real pleasure being with you this morning. Uh, we always have a good time chatting. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, too, because my show kicked off in February of 07, and we connected on LinkedIn six months later. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a coincidence. I mean, I've known you longer than that because you've been writing and i've been seeing your stuff for literally decades yeah likewise all roads lead to rome which i guess rome is mark amtower <laughs> maybe anyway uh give us a little background well let's see it goes back away starting in the 1970s believe it or not through the 1990s so i worked first i was a government contractor in IT hardware, and then a software engineer, and a project manager, and a business developer. I, well, I was a domestic and international business development, both Asia and Europe, and an operations executive. And then in 1999, uh, right before Y2K, I hung up my suit and tie and started a consulting company, uh, Celerity Works, and I advised over 60 contractors on how to improve their ability to win more government business. We implemented the PM process in several companies, including Mantech. So it's a little schizophrenic business development and project management. And I co-founded the annual federal program management summit, uh, implemented the acquisition risk management process at FedSim. One of the co-founders of GovFlex.com and I developed the Government Contractor Knowledge Academy, which is maybe the largest online repository of how to do business with the government. And I was also an adjunct marketing professor at National Lewis University. And then finally, before COVID, I'd written several books, including How to Develop a Winning Small Business Innovation Research, SBIR proposal with Eric Adolfi, Winning and Managing Government Business, The Enlightened Manager, and Romancing the Buddha, which is on its third printing and is a one-man show I did that's on YouTube. And then, let's see, lastly, since COVID, because I guess I was stuck home with my wife and um, she finally got tired of talking to me, so I had to find something to do. So I wrote Personal Growth in the Time of COVID. Then I wrote another book, My 50 Years of Buddhist Practice, and then The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project. And now our new How to Win in the Government Market book, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little excited about that, too. So let's talk about this. What was the impetus for this initially? Well, when I wrote that book last year about project management, it was because I had collected so many lessons 
learned and best practices from having been involved and done so many risk reviews on hundreds of projects. And we talked about that last year, you know, about a lot of the lessons that I'd learned. And then I swore it was my last book. But then later last year, I realized I also wanted to share all the mistakes I'd seen centered on selling to the government. And I guess you could say the book is my second retirement legacy project. Okay. So How to Win the Government Market is a collection of essays previously published elsewhere. Why did you want to do it with me? Let's see. Well, I like a challenge, Mark. <laughs> I'm certainly that. <laughs> no, I, I was so excited. I reached out to you, what was it, last November, because of your reputation in the industry. As you said, we've been on parallel tracks for over 30 years. Also, your marketing and sales expertise, which in social selling, which dovetails nicely with my BD capture proposal operations experience. So we kind of fill out the rainbow. And we've both felt an absence of one place you could find real life lessons learned, not just the things that you can, you know, that are more how to do, but rather these are the things that really happen. And this is how to do, do it when you're facing real situations. And I've seen too many of our fellow professionals keep making the same mistakes. And I know you felt the same way. So working with you combined, what, 80 years of uh, talking to thousands of people, doing, we've seen a lot of things and we've advised hundreds of companies. And I guess finally I would say, now that I think about it, I was really glad because you were thinking about the same kind of project. And so we gathered ideas, some old, some new, from uh, hundreds, several hundred of our articles, some of which we considered from our perspective, hopefully others, timeless. And we rewrote them and put them into 54 chapters in this book. That was probably the hardest part for me because I really wanted to pick out uh, some of the best, uh, what I consider the best of my stuff. And I know you did too. And when you have, uh, you know, I've got 180 articles on LinkedIn. I've been writing for Wash Tech for 14 years just about every month uh you know i post on my own blog and i've had the newsletter so picking 25 or 26 pieces was not easy i mean three or four of them jumped out immediately as as my personal favorites right so the simple act of being on linkedin as marketing is is one of my all-time favorite articles for me it was uh you know, I've been an email person for so many years and collect, and I have several thousand people that I email to in industry and government. So for me, I'm, I was, I used constant contact the first year they went and came out in business. So I was early adopter. So I've got hundreds of articles that I've sent out in that venue. So it was interesting because we've combined those two distribution channels. Yeah. And, but again, you know, this, the selection process was, I don't believe, simple for, for either of us because we left so much on the table. So um, I want to talk about how we leveraged LinkedIn to get the word out, but we're going to take a break first because I don't want to interrupt that thought. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, we're discussing for a short time our, our new book, How to Win in the Government Market. 
uh, you can find Mike on LinkedIn, Mike Lissagor, L-I-S-A-G-O-R, and we'll return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Mike Lissagor, my co-author of How to Win in the Government Market. It's available on Amazon. We published it through Amazon. We're following our own advice in the book on how we get the word out. So I started off with uh, uh, wait for it, you know, now available in the book. And I did that as an article on LinkedIn. And uh, I got, you know, pretty good response, uh, 227 views. But more importantly for me, I got 17 reshares. So that means 17 people found it valuable enough to share it with their network. So that goes to exponential reach. And I talk about that in the book. But the other cool thing about it, a lot of likes, a lot of comments, and only 50% of the views were from the DC Baltimore area. The other 50% was from all over the country, which I love. Yeah, I and I did this a similar thing to Mark. Um, besides sending out to my distribution email-wise, on LinkedIn, I've had the similar experience to Mark, and we've been commenting on each other's LinkedIn posts, which helps. And I've also I also did something else, and that was every day I've tried to send out ten or twenty messages to people in my network on LinkedIn, and just tell them just a brief link to the book. You can, it's Kindle and paperback and a little bit about it, what it is. And now I've been posting a PDF of the table of contents and Nick Wakeman, who's the editor-in-chief of WashTech, Washington Technology, his forward, gracious enough to write us a great forward so people could see what's in the book. Yeah, we cover a lot of areas in this book. And I want to talk about some of those. So let's take... You know, lessons learned here. How can businesses best plan for growth? Take that thought and run with it, please. Sure. It's uh, something I love talking about. I mean, let's face it, there's probably 100,000 books and articles, oh, probably a million, about this topic. So many of the business growth assessment interviews that I've done when I go into large and small businesses, managers complain about, and I made a list, conflicting and changing priorities, vague targets, unpredictable results, unsound investment strategies, unclear lines of authority and responsibility, and management confusion and staff frustration. So your question reminds me of my favorite Lily Tomlin quote, who, in my opinion, wrote pretty much everything that's worth writing. She said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific which I think speaks really clearly about the main issue with planning. There's so many blogs and articles, but the real challenge, what separates the slow growth organizations from the barnstormers is a leader's willingness to develop a business strategy that has clear and measurable objectives and has the support of key staff. And thirdly, it's used throughout the year to measure progress and make decisions. A few examples of these kind of objectives that you could quantify are how much will it increase financial value? How much will we grow in market share in our target markets? Or how much will we increase employee satisfaction? 
And there's lots like that, but they're, you can quantify them. They're not just broad themes. And then the relationship between a company's mission, your purpose for being in business and your vision, what you want to look like in three to five years, and then the strategic envelope, which is the services and products and target agencies, if you can imagine that in a, you know, actual envelope that you, these are the things you'll concentrate on and say no to things that are outside that envelope, which takes courage and then breakthrough objectives that if achieved will have the most impact on achieving your, your growth objectives. So these objectives are three to five, not 10 to 20. And then each one has maybe three to five priority actions, not 10 to 20. Because too many companies have 50 or 100 actions coming out of their annual meetings. And then the CEO looks at the indirect and direct staff and says, go do this on sweat equity. Another important lesson is incentive plans should reward behaviors and results that are consistent with your objectives. And then lastly, if you have someone on the outside assess your business acquisition process and resources, someone like Mark or someone like him, it will pay a lot of dividends. It really makes a difference because I don't see my own eyebrows. I can see other people's, but I don't always see my own weaknesses and where, where I need to improve. And organizations are like that too. I don't know about you, but I, I don't do anything outside of the government market business-wise. And I think there are a number of unique factors in our market that makes that planning for growth not necessarily more difficult, but certainly it's just different. It's a different uh, ecosystem. Do you see it that way? Absolutely. We, you and I could talk for an hour of two days about how commercial differs from uh, government, federal, state, and local, international, anything having where you're selling to governments is so different. So many more rules and regulations. The acquisition process is different on and on. And even just the terminology isn't something you can learn in three months. And so I think it's really important to use resources. And there's like us and other people like us that have been doing this a long time. They can help jumpstart people that are newer to the business. There's no reason to make the same darn mistakes that people have made before. Might as well make your own. Yeah. Another issue I've run across, at least on the marketing side, is when you have uh, the, the founder and current CEO who is a techie who may have graduated from you know, being an agency, a key agency employee to starting a business and exploiting you know, the relationships. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Uh, to, to you know, get the business rolling, and you know, my problem with them is now they think they're a brain surgeon and they know everything they need to know about marketing, business development, program management, etc. But the the people that they initially worked with at the agency may or may not be there, and they want to migrate somewhere else. And the attitudes that you have shown me in the book, or show everybody in the book particularly the chapter on five habits of incompetent people. Can you address this a little bit? How do you deal with it? Absolutely. The, well, <laughs> there's not a whole lot that the staff can do to change the, the founder's personality 
their strengths and weaknesses. You can, hopefully we can supplement them. We can make a difference in the areas that they're weak. But the, the reality is, is most small businesses that don't gra- successfully graduate and the Beltway's littered with them is because they the owner can't transition to full and open competitions, uh, can't scale. Here's a few reasons. One is the executives who run their own planning sessions and won't let go. Technical people, I worked for a president of a company who actually drove me out of the company after 10 years because he was technically just so outstanding. But his management style, he had no so little management training and he just was so abusive verbally. This happens in small business and big businesses. But small business owners that I used to say that the worst thing that happens is when a small business bids on an opportunity and and they win on the first one they bid as a small as a start starting out business because now the owner thinks that all they have to do is throw things or proposals in to RFPs without doing any of the great marketing you've talked about in our book. Too many CEOs have pet projects and they can't uh, concentrate, so they their indirect staff is kind of like getting whiplashes. You know, their overhead staff contracts, human resources, you go, you know, you can finance. Because all of a sudden, the, the CEO, instead of coming to the office, has flown to Taiwan because there's a some kind of satellite software system that they have a friend who told them that they, you know, oh, you should come in and come see me because your company is perfect to do this. But his company doesn't know anything about international. I can't tell you how many small businesses I've seen pursue opportunities that are totally not in their core competency or if it is in their core competency, has nothing to do with what their target markets are, maybe the one or two agencies they're in. And it's a recipe for failure. Not having a sufficient internal staff to actually do the things they want to do is kind of a huge problem. And then leaders that won't delegate responsibility and authority is another big issue in small businesses where the founder or that doesn't necessarily have to be the founder, although quite often it is. It can be the president or the COO. Um, I've worked for one company that had two COOs. We used to call them the cuckoo organization because neither one of them seemed to be able to get along. But be that as it may, the unwillingness to delegate it can be a huge problem. And so what I found when I worked in situations like that and when I coach people, managers in those kind of situations is document everything. If you don't get a clear sense of priorities from the people, from your boss, then go back with an email politely, always with respect, saying, here's the priorities that I'm working on and that I have the resources to do. As opposed to going home and just complaining about it and, you know, drinking a fifth of scotch. The, I mean, you might have to do that anyway, but at least you can take responsibility for your area that you work on. And if you're in BD, you can only do so much in BD or so much in proposals. And your only responsibility is to communicate back to management what you can and can't do. Then they make a decision as to, based on that information. But if you don't push back some and let them know, again, respectfully, that we can only do these two proposals in the next uh, two weeks and because they want you to do three, four, five. You have to push back. 
You can only, because that's your responsibility, that's acting with integrity. But at the same time, at some point, the leader makes the decision, you salute, and you do one of two things. You do your best to get it done, and if it drives you too crazy, you go find another job. Well, yeah, there's certainly always that. And we're going to end this segment on that thought. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. The, uh, the book is How to Win in the Government Market, available on Amazon. And Mike and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Mike Lissigore. Uh, Mike and I have recently released the book, How to Win in the Government Market, available on Amazon. And, um, Michael, I, I, I want to get back to that small biz uh, thing. So why don't more companies successfully graduate from whatever set-aside category they're in to full and open? There's, of course, there's, as I'm sure your listeners know, there's so many reasons why companies don't. I think I've talked about earlier some actions companies can take. I made, I kind of jotted down a list from, there's so much more in the book that we talk about this, but I, there are numerous reasons that, you know, if you take eight A's, hub zones, small disadvantage, veteran owned, women owned, and so on, there's a lot of reasons they fail. Put another way, there are a lot of steps small businesses should take to become larger competitive businesses and to become larger competitive companies. In my early career, I experienced two effective graduations. And since then, of eight A's that I worked for, did the was responsible for business development for. And since then, several others with consulting clients. And here's the challenges, and you can always take these challenges and reverse them into strengths. Uh, we talked about an inadequate planning process we talked. Uh, we already talked about executives that lead their own planning sessions and their own business development sessions, pro, you know, pipeline discussions, and so on. And so, right away, that inhibits open discussion and whole, a wholehearted, you know, wholehearted buy-in. I'm always curious why some leaders are reluctant to relinquish this role. I don't know. Sometimes it's arrogance. Sometimes it's in it's insecurity. Because well, if I let go of this and let other and delegate, then I have no control over what's going to happen. But you also never raise leaders. So you're basically a general of privates instead of a general of generals. A big one is the absence of a business development capture proposal process and resources. That BD capture proposal process I put into over 40 companies, the small businesses, because it just wasn't there. And I don't mean it has to be you know, you have to go out and buy a $20,000 lead tracking system. And, you know, you can do in the beginning, small businesses can do this with Excel and PowerPoint. And I'm a big believer of PowerPoint, capture presentations, use PowerPoint wherever you can, even business plans, all the business plans I've helped companies do have been done in PowerPoint, because otherwise people will just wordsmith the hell out of the Word document and lose, lose the whole point. Small businesses uh, a lot of times don't have a well-defined set of core competencies or they're technical distributors, discriminators and distributors, or they have a poorly defined value proposition. It's a real killer when you write a proposal or when you're going in and talking to a government client and they ask you, okay, what sets you apart? And your answer is, well, we're the only person in this building. You can't just be the 8,800th small business that does 
IT help desk services. There's got to be something that sets you apart. I'm not saying that's easy, but it's worth spending time on. A lot of times there's an unwillingness to remain focused. Small businesses, and I talked about this, so I won't repeat it, but that lack of focus coming from the top quite often is a real killer. Over-reliance on just a few agencies. This is, like Mark said, this is a great way to start. You know, you get into one agency and then you organically use references to go or, or find agencies with similar type needs as the agency you're in, and then you've got good references and past performance. But at some point, you need to grow to those next, you need to expand. And especially if you're going to go full and open at some point, which means having strategic partnerships. And with new emerging small businesses, you really be taking the time to prepare for your recompetes, which is a you know, whole nother topic that I talk about in the book because not so few companies, too many companies wait till the RFP comes out for their recompete to prepare. And then also um, not considering mergers and acquisitions as a growth strategy. When you're a small business and let's say you're 50 or 100 people, getting to that next past 100 is huge. And then getting past 500, there's like these um, stair steps. And Quite often, part of that strategy is merging with another small businesses or getting bought out by a bigger company. I mean, there's lots of, in starting another company, there's lots of ways that the founder can get to that next level. And I think it's really important also for small businesses to go out and talk to the CEOs of small businesses that have successfully graduated because their lessons or worth a million dollars to you. Cool. So how about brain picking with employees for that that growth and that expansion? How important is it to talk to your frontline people? I have a few thoughts on this. One is that for your listeners, sell S-E-L-L is not really a four-letter word. I know you think it is. And I understand that most people aren't comfortable taking the risk that being in business development entails, but we're all selling all the time. We don't go out of our way to make bad impressions on people. So for project managers, for technical staff, for anyone who has faces a customer or a potential customer, they're the first thing for a company growing is to have a culture where your line staff understands that business development can't do anything if you don't give them good past performance, if you don't give them good referrals, if you don't give them a good reputation in your existing client base. So your line staff in a company are doing selling, quote unquote, in its most um, benign consultative way. Just as importantly, their role as business development and capture. And then also, I'd like to remind people that aren't in sales but are in a line organization that sales is an opportunity to make friends, that your best target for your company's growth is your current clients. You've already sold them once. So if, as long as you make a good, do a good job for them, and that's not always easy, that's a whole nother topic in that other book I wrote last year on project management, managing client expectations is obviously a huge challenge. But 
starting with your existing client. And you can't just bring in a bunch of business development, like a business development person they don't know to go talk to them. Your project manager, I get so many times, I'll go walk in and talk to talk and coach a project manager. And this is before COVID. But if you think of virtual offices, and I'll ask Mary, do you know the person in the office next to you? You know, the government person in the office next to yours that does a, a different project. And she'll go, no, now we've said hi. It doesn't make any sense. So the last thing I would say is I worked for a company that successfully graduated. They were one of the big success companies. I was a, their, their outside growth consultant for several years. And one of the things we did, I set up a program because we wanted to create a culture of sales in the company, a sales kind of growth culture, but in a way that motivated people. So we set up an incentive plan where we incentivized people and gave them bonuses at the end of each month by how many sales calls they did. Sales calls were talk to anybody in government or industry that is a potential you know, teaming partner or client, any kind of contact outside the company. It was unbelievable. They went from like seven or eight, including BD, sales calls a month to over 50. Because and people, there was a big celebration at the end of each month. We did it for a year and the whole culture in the company changed. And it ended up going from a $8 million company to 75 million and then they sold themselves. So- it works. It does work, you know, and, and it, it reminds me that there are opportunities literally everywhere. Um, so whether or not there's physical proximity or proximity on LinkedIn, um, you know, I found an article that I did on LinkedIn back in uh, 2014. I had just done my first census of feds on LinkedIn and LinkedIn said, you know, this company is the biggest company on LinkedIn, and here's the top five. And my research showed that the U.S. Army was number three at that time on LinkedIn if you added the components that had separate company pages. So, you know, you're traipsing around on LinkedIn, especially now that everybody's, uh, you know, or a lot of people are still working from home. You've gotten more comfortable with LinkedIn there's opportunities there waiting to happen too. Yeah. And Mark, you know, you talk in the book about your LinkedIn profile and, and you do such a good job of framing out why the reasons why it's so important. And you give, and I love that you give concrete advice on how you can improve your profile. We could have a whole discussion on companies that that do great work, but their website looks like they don't even know how to spell technology because their website is so pathetic. But be that as it may, on LinkedIn, every single employee that has a profile on LinkedIn is a potential business developer. And yet most people's LinkedIn profile in companies, companies don't take advantage of it. Their LinkedIn profile is pretty much bland or all about them and not also about the place they work. And that's a huge marketing opportunity that companies can take advantage of, including their own LinkedIn profile for the company. And then lastly, if I could throw in one other thing, and that's having your technical experts write LinkedIn artic articles and, you know, basically blog 
um, kind of like you have for years, Mark, on LinkedIn about marketing. Yeah, it's such a great platform. People don't have to be able to write to be technical experts. You probably have, you can either hire a writer or you probably have somebody that's a good writer in your company who can interview the technical expert and then write the article. Somehow you need to, and it needs to be regularly done. Makes a huge difference because like you said, Mark, hundreds of thousands of of feds and state and local um, buyers are looking on LinkedIn all the time to get smart. Yep. With that, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Mike and I will wrap up right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with my friend and co-author, Mike Lissigore. Our our latest book, uh, the one we've done together, is How to Win in the Government Market. Uh, find it on Amazon. Um, you won't find it in brick and mortar. But find it anyway. Uh, so let, let's wrap up with a little discussion on the importance of making well-thought-out pursuit and bid decisions. Too often I have, you know, people predicating their their bid decisions on, ooh, it fits my nakes. Um, start there and, uh, and take it. Absolutely. Obviously there's a whole level of sophistication on a, a range of sophistication on bidding into the federal government. So I'm going to try to share different aspects maybe that will fit different people's situation. I have seen just as Mark has the time and money that so many government contractors and sales professionals waste qualifying and chasing new business opportunities could with a little honest introspection be eliminated. So there's two aspects of this that I'd like to talk about really. And that I expand on in the book. And one is there's pursuit decisions and too many companies just go right by that one. And I used to have a, a COO, chief operating officer, who in the 90s, who used to just send, he would just kept sending me down Commerce Business Daily announcements back when the CBD announcements were the way we found out about opportunities. And he just kept sending them down. Every day I'd get more. As if we were supposed to, ch- we had unlimited resources to change all this stuff. That's why I encourage my clients who didn't already to employ a pursuit decision-making process. It's a simple matrix. So just imagine down the left a a set of key questions that if not answered in the affirmative would result in a decision not to continue. And then going across the top is maybe one to 10 or one to five or red, green, yellow, whatever, whatever, uh, you know, strikes your fancy. Now, of course, if if senior management doesn't adhere to the results, this is just an exercise in frustration. Here's just a few bullets uh, that you could have in that. For instance, is this bid consistent with your strategic focus, your competencies, your target markets, staffing location, labor costs, so on? Is there a reasonable chance of it being funded? It's amazing how many companies chase business that if they did a little research, they'd find out that this isn't even a funded project it's or it's it's the funding hasn't been approved or the agency this part of the agency has a history for moving money around and defunding these kind of technology projects is it a very small task in other words is it even important 
to do? Does it have follow-on potential? And is there enough time to adequately research and talk to the client prior to the RFP being released, right? Kind of like Mark was saying, oh, this fits my NAICS. I'm going to go throw in a proposal. Well, you and a, you and a hundred other companies. That should screen out about three-fourths of the opportunities, if not 90%, that you would waste your time on. And you can focus your business development and capture and proposal staff on the higher uh, probability bids. As far as bid decisions go, I'd encourage you to have some sort of lead tracking system and you to have and each company to have some, and it doesn't have to be this uh, really involved lead tracking system with bells and whistles. If, as you get bigger, you'll want that. But I've seen too many small businesses waste too much time and overhead feeding the bees and keeping their lead tracking system contents current. Yes, that's important, but don't have like 15, 20 categories for every lead because you just can't keep it current. You can use Excel spreadsheets in the beginning quite successfully for lead tracking. Here's, here's some ideas of the questions, and it's the same kind of matrix as pursuit decisions, Mark, but it's but it um, it has more detail. And what's, what's your overall ability to meet the technical requirements? Do you have the necessary past performance? Do you have the key personnel, including the project manager? How, how much risk is there in successfully executing this contract? With really the question here is, do you really want to win? You know, I mean, if, yeah, if, uh, if it's not something you feel that can be successfully done, well, yeah, you can win it, but then your past performance is going to be terrible because you didn't succeed. Have you mar marketed the client? Is this contract type too risky? There's a chapter in our book that I wrote that's the relative risk of each contract type from high risk fixed price to low risk cost plus contracts and everything in between. So I'd encourage people to take a look at that because it makes a big difference on whether and how you propose on an opportunity. Can you be cost competitive in the world that we live in with lowest price technically acceptable? And, you know, I just, you can go to Washington Technology and Google Mike Lissigor LPTA and you'll find an article I wrote a few weeks ago about LPTA because it kind of sucks to use the technical term. But we're all faced with that reality a lot of the times. And can you bid successfully as a competitor in that kind of environment? I don't mean being the low cost, but can you, is that, if that agency has a history of awarding to the low cost, barely credible bidder, do you really want to be there? How much competition is there? I want to uh, emphasize that too many companies over, overestimate win probability. They come up. They come up with a high number because if they're swallowing their own bathwater or to please upper management. But if there's seven, eight companies bidding, there's no way you have a seventy-five percent or fifty percent win probability. It's just, it's just no way, right? And, and I'm not saying don't bid it. I'm just saying be realistic so that you really put the energy into winning that opportunity. And then the. Do you have the two last things? Maybe um, do you have the necessary proposal resources and the time to do a good proposal? This is really important. But nothing's worse than having a proposal team with low morale. But so many companies do this. They pile all these crappy bids 
and tell the proposal manager to go manage these bids. And the proposal managers know it, you can't win it. And yet they've got to write a proposal. It, it's a recipe for either losing your proposal team or having them demotivated, which means they're not doing their best work. And then I want the last thing I want to point out is, are you a credible prime contractor or should you be subcontracting? And then is your prime contractor credible? Um, and this is my last thought, but it's so important because I've seen this happen on a number of occasions. I know a big consulting company, well, I won't name it, it's one of the big ones, and they bid, they couldn't bid as the prime because it was a, an 8A set aside. And they picked an 8A that the owner, that the head of the business unit in this com consulting com company was his, one of his neighbors and friends. He picked that 8A and yeah, they, that was their area they were in technically and they were giving them 51% of the business. And when they submitted the proposal, the government did what the prime, what the, this company should have done they ran a Dun & Bradstreet report. And what did they find out? They found out that they were almost going out of business. They were like 90 days late on in credit on paying their bills. And then that further, they didn't have the key personnel. They had no depth. They had like one person that was really an outstanding expert in artificial intelligence and nobody else. And they were going to be the prime. So do your homework before you bid an opportunity. And because teaming is such a critical aspect of making a decision to bid and propose on an opportunity. Michael, this is great stuff, man. And I'm, uh, I wanna thank you, first of all, for inviting me to do the book with you. And then thank you again for being on the show. For you listening out there, we have 50 plus articles in here that offer practical advice on things that you can do today. What Mike and I thrive on though, is the feedback that we're getting from people on this. So buy the book, How to Win in the Government Market by Mark Amtower and Mike Lissigore. And even if you don't like certain parts of us, let us know and let us know why. Let's have a discussion. We need that kind of stuff in order to uh, put out a better book. And I don't know if that's possible, Mike, because I like this one a lot. I know, we can always make changes. It's an upload away. There you go. Michael, thank you again for joining me today. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. e-commerce merchants. Does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today.